Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. This past Election Day marked the beginning of a new chapter in the state legislature here in Minnesota. We saw a series of firsts, including the first black woman to be elected to the state Senate. Except it wasn't just one, it was three. All three of them are DFLers, and one of them is the youngest woman ever elected to the state Senate. I brought them together to have a roundtable discussion about their personal backgrounds and the impact they believe they can have in the state legislature. Let's start by introducing everyone. Zainab Mohammed is the senator-elect for Minnesota Senate District 63, which includes parts of South Minneapolis. Aaron May Quaid is the senator-elect for Minnesota Senate District 56, which includes Apple Valley and parts of Rosemount and Egan. And Claire Umu-Verbaden is the senator-elect for Minnesota Senate District 66, which includes Roseville, Lauderdale, Falcon Heights, and parts of St. Paul. So nice to meet all of you. Thank you for having us. And congratulations uh, to everyone. As we talk, uh, I want to know if it's okay if I call you by your first names. Yes. 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 Okay, good. All right. So let's go back to election night. I'm, I'm sure it seems like a long time ago. Uh, but when you found out that you won your race, tell me about the moment that you knew you'd done it. What was going through your head? I, I'd love to hear from each of you. Zainab, would you go first? Yeah, it was exciting. It was a room full of uh, close friends and family and supporters. Um, it was pretty private. We didn't, you know, make it public because I wanted to be intentional who was in the room. And I was right in front of my mom and next to me is, was my current senator, Patricia Torres Ray. And so it was exciting and hopeful and um, a lot of, a lot of tears and excitement and screams. So it's everything we've looked forward to this entire year. And Aaron, what about you? The the moment you knew, it's official. Yeah. So um, Dakota County, love Dakota County. They are notorious for being a little bit later than the rest of a lot of the counties getting their vote counts in. And I have a six month old baby. And my wife also uh, works in electoral organizing. And so she was downtown and doing, you know, the big statewide stuff. And so I was home with the baby. I'd put her to bed and I was I was at home. And so I was just refreshing. And I did a really, really silent big dance (laughs) so that I did not wake up the baby. There was no screaming. There was no crying. Um, But just a lot of happy smiles and, you know, a really like nerdy dance by myself. What did you say to your child? Nothing. Stay asleep. She was sleeping. <laughs> Smart woman. She was sleeping. And uh, and Claire, what about you? The the moment it was real. Yeah, I was at home. I wanted to be with my family and friends, and I actually got an amazing surprise just a few days before the election. My sister lives in London um, with her husband and my little nephew, and they came in to surprise me and be here for the election. I had no idea they were coming, and so. I was there with my parents and my sister and my nephew and my aunt and uncle came in and my campaign team and just I wanted it to be with those people who really made this happen and got me there to that moment. And I was, you know, refreshing the Secretary of State's page and just seeing the numbers come in and um, just sort of this relief and excitement and anticipation and um, just felt so thankful to be there with my people. So as I recall, an election night, I was home, I'm watching the election returns, and then the next day as well. Um, and, you know, I, you know, one after the other, 
I was like, oh, my goodness, what is going on? Minnesota, we're, we're, we're doing this. Um, so before now, so much has, has been made of the fact that, that Minnesota has never had a black woman elected to the state Senate. And so now to have three black women uh, elected and then soon to be sworn in and walking in all at the same time. Uh, what comes to mind as you, you think about the, the absence of a black female perspective all these years? What were we missing out on? Zainab. Yeah, I mean, we've been missing uh, not making policies on the perspectives and experiences of black women. It's been 165 years where we've created policies and created budgets and our experiences have never been at the table. Um, and we know good policies come from people who understand the experiences and the impacts of, of the policies that we do create. Um, and I think this creates an opportunity with myself and Senator-elect Aaron McQuaid and Claire and Wilbur Bain because we're going to have uh, vastly different experiences than our counterparts from, from different parts of this state who have different experiences than we do. And you have different experiences from each other. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And Claire, what do you what do you think? What were we missing out? Uh, what what was going on in the absence of a black female perspective, which is different than a black male perspective? Yeah. So much. I, you know, I've been asked this question a lot and I just always think about my mom. Like my mom, um, who is the black woman and role model in my life, went through um, so much just to like bring me into this world. My mom uh, is from Senegal and she uh, immigrated here and had to like totally start over, you know, learning a new language and building her career. And my mom owns a small cleaning business. She's been cleaning throughout the front lines of this pandemic, like just my mom like now gets to have her daughter be one of the first black women to serve in the Minnesota Senate. And we all come from strong moms. There's so many amazing, you know, black women who are um, just working every day to survive in this state. And so I just really want to honor that. And I think um, it's this like really heavy burden, but it's something I'm also really proud to, to be holding in that we're representing our districts, of course, but we have this constituency beyond our districts that's really important to us that I feel like we have a duty to represent and to do right by in the Minnesota Senate. So I think about all those moms. Mm-hmm. And Erin, uh, as a, a new mom, um, what do you think was missing in the conversations that were happening in the Senate um, without having a, a black woman having a seat at the table? I think when we have conversations about people without people, they become very um, theoretical conversations. They become academic conversations about, quote unquote, those people. And it's not as personal. It's not as um, rooted in experience. And, you know, we have had a democracy entirely without black women in the state of Minnesota. And I don't think you can have a democracy without black women. And so we're going to finally have black women at the table to be involved in budget conversations and policy conversations. And I think the fact that we have some of the largest racial disparities in the nation here in the state is evidence of the lack of representation um, at bo- in both chambers. And so, you know, I was the third black woman elected to the Minnesota House in 2016. And so we've largely made policies without black women. And that's changing. So I was going to ask you about that. You served, you've already served in the Minnesota House uh, from 2017 to 2019. So why did you want to make this change and now serve in the Senate? Like, what do you see now being different? 
Yeah, I mean, um, Claire and Zainab and I just went through orientation, and a lot of what we heard um, in orientation was, you know, we're we're better than the house, and we're different than the house, and you know, we have culture and norms, and all I kept thinking was, and you made all of those without black women, and largely without women in general, right? Like, I'm a nursing mom. You can't drink water on the floor of the Senate. Um, you can't have your children in the retiring room. These are things that are evident of a very, very specific kind of culture that was largely created without uh, people like myself or Claire Zainab in mind. And so, um, you know, the Senate is the more deliberative body, certainly, but my state senator was retiring. We needed a proven leader who could step into leadership in my community, but we also needed new voices and new energy in the Senate. Zainab, you are... 25 years old and also now the youngest woman to serve in the state Senate, the first Gen Z state senator. What does all that mean to you? Um, it means that young people have a place in our in our society to begin with, and it means that they are a part of our government. I mean, Gen Z make about, I think, one third of, of, our, of our state, if not our country. And so um, I think that we're a growing population that's showing up in the, in the ballot boxes and voting. But, and now we're actually showing up and on, on the ballot as candidates and, and we're choosing to, to tackle these issues that we know have been spoken of young people every year we have an election, especially presidential elections. It's how critical young voters are to our democracy, how much we need to get them involved to vote. And now they're they're choosing to be involved in that and actually take things, uh, initiatives into their own hands and, and choose to run for office, to manage campaigns, to organize. And that's kind of where I come from. And it's been by my background and something that I'm being a young person for me is um, in our campaign, a lot of young people, every single person we hired in our campaign was 25 years old or under. Um and that was important for me because I can connect with these folks because I'm like them. And we can also connect on uh, ways that we've been left out of the conversations when we were making decisions for years. And Claire, you're 27 mm -hmm. years old. And uh, when I met you for the first time, I asked you, <laughs> what was it like when you were knocking on doors? Because I said, if you knocked on my door, I would have been like, Really? You? You're really running? Like you seem, you look young to me. Yes. Did that happen to you? I'm not saying that that's okay, but did that happen all the to time, you? All the time, all the time. Probably the most common question that I got, like, how old are you? Are you old enough to run for office? And you, you, you know, get used to that and have uh, lots of different responses. I started telling people, I just have really good genes, you know? <laughs> Which clearly uh, you do, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we need more young people in office and, um, folks would say that a lot and still overwhelmingly they would, they'd follow up with, that's so great. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited to see a young person stepping up to lead. Um, it was, you know, rarely ever something they were upset about. And we think about the world today. I mean, the world has always been changing, but it really feels like now it's rapidly changing. And clearly young people are rising up and voting and paying attention and want a voice in what is to come in terms of the solutions. Do you feel that? Yeah, absolutely. I think we showed up in this last election and mm -hmm. I, you know, there's all that conversation about like, is there going to be a red wave? And it's, you know, it's historically a bad year for um, Democrats. And I mean, we swept things here in Minnesota. And I think often those polls are are not really um, reflecting young people, certainly, and just a lot of the communities that, you know, we belong to, whether it's, mm -hmm. it's black women, people of color, queer folks, right? Um, 
we showed up, we got out to vote, and I think people um, were were kind of missing a lot of key voices uh, when they were looking at trying to figure out what was going to happen in this election. And Aaron, you're in your early 30s. I'm 36, yes. Mid-30s. I, I also get the, would get the question, how old are you? Are you <laughs> right. old enough to run? I'd be like, I'm almost 40. <laughs> yes. And so in your time when you were serving in the House, did the legislature feel very mature to you? Mature probably isn't the word I would use. Um, it felt... Um, Gosh, you know, sometimes it felt like I was walking into a totally different era. Um, you know, there were things that happened to me when I was a House member. I was like, really? We're still doing that? Um, like what? Tell me. I was sexually harassed when I was in the in the House. And, you know, people would make comments about my body and about my marriage. And, and you know, I was like, it is 2017. I, are we really like we work together and we're making the laws and policies of the people of this state. And I don't think we need to talk about each other's bodies to each other or, you know, with each other. Um and so, you know, it definitely felt it, you could feel that change happening, running headlong into that um, that culture change. And the House certainly experienced it first. And then I think we're part of the class. Claire Zainab and I are part of the class that's going to do that in the Senate, too. Um, as a uh, a black woman who's a journalist, I feel like I can relate. I've moved in many spaces where I'm the only black woman uh, in a newsroom, in a meeting uh, or at an event. And uh, it is it feels um, often like having a spotlight on you all the time. Mm -hmm. And have you given thought to um, I think you've sort of mentioned just a pressure like people are excited, but they have high expectations. And and when you talk to yourself, what do you say to yourself about, you know, I'm one person, I'm going to do what I can do. But does it feel like a, a um, that you're carrying a lot of weight? Zainab? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Claire said, said it right. Um with being the first is a lot of heaviness that comes with it. Every every time I have a community meeting, um, it's about being a Muslim woman and being visibly Muslim and the fact that I'm going to be the only person wearing a hijab and what does that mean? And um, from internally, the community is like, you represent all of us, no matter where we are in this country. And so, and then like being a black woman, you do have a large community that hasn't been represented that you represent, that you have to uphold their values. Um, and so like it, it's exciting because it's like, okay, we do deserve a seat at the table and we're here and we're going to make it known. Um, but you cannot disappoint your community because they're all counting on you to do this right. And, and they'll let you know. And to let you know. <laughs> oh, they do. <laughs> and so it's exciting and it's a lot of work, I think. And uh, Claire, does it feel heavy? Are you, are you feeling as though... I'm stepping, well, obviously, you know, you're stepping to, to something that has a lot of responsibility, but is there an extra burden that you carry? It definitely feels heavy. Um, I'm so glad I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. Like I was the last person to to get into this race. I jumped in after redistricting. And so um, Aaron was already running and Zainab was already running. And I reached out to them right away and felt like I had that sisterhood and, and support system. So I'm so grateful that we all made it through and are going to go in there together. Uh, I try to remind myself that, you know, I've been through hard things in my life. My, you know, my family has been through hard things like that's in my blood and DNA. And it's part of why I'm here, you know, standing here today is because I come from resilient people. So I just have to trust that, you know, I've, I've got what it takes and I will I'll figure it out. 
I love the word resilient. <laughs> it's a good word. It says a lot. Uh, do you feel resilient? And, and do you feel as though, um, Aaron, that, you know, having uh, Claire and Zainab, uh, again, I have this vision of you walking in together. Uh, will you be able to have each other's back in a way that will make this experience uh, different than if you were you were just the first as one person, but it's three of you at one time? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, there's something that happens when um, – you are a black woman in leadership. Even when you're a child, you know, you're told often, I was told often, you have to be twice as good to be taken half as seriously. I'm sure you've had that conversation or heard mm-hmm. those words too. And so there's a little bit of it that feels like this is no different than everything I've done my whole life, except I have people with me. I have Claire and I have Zainab with me. You know, we have our text chain and and we're on calls together. And um, having not being alone means the world, right? It means that we can, there can be three of us, right? There's three different voices. We can say it three different times. We can be on three different committees at once. And so um, it amplifies our impact and it amplifies and it uh, makes our ability to affect change three times greater than if we were just alone. Uh- Claire and uh, Aaron, in addition to being among the first black women to be elected uh, to the Minnesota Senate, um, Aaron and Claire, you're also the first LGBTQ women uh, who are out uh, in the Senate. There are only a handful of openly uh, gay state legislators in Minnesota. What is the significance of that to you, especially during a time when we are seeing, you know, just rising anti-LGBTQ rhetoric in the U.S.? Uh, Claire? Yeah, I- think we're up to 12 now mm-hmm. uh, with this recent election. We just had a, a meeting of all the um, queer legislators and talking about our, our priorities. And again, it's heavy. It's like yesterday, it was just mm-hmm. another example of how there are people who are using this really dangerous, violent rhetoric, and it's leading to us being killed. I mean, we're being attacked for who we are. They're talking about the nightclub yes. shooting, the mass shooting. Yeah, in Colorado Springs. Um, that's why I, I really wanted to, as I ran, just be really clear, like, this is who I am. I'm really proud to be um, a black woman. I'm proud to be a queer woman. I'm proud to be young, right? Like, And you can hold all those identities and you can serve in office. We need people of all different walks of life to be there making those decisions and uh, and for me, like, it, even if I wasn't running this year, just seeing, like, Aaron and Zainab and the other LGBTQ folks that stepped up to run, like, it w- I felt like there are people who look like me, finally, who are going into the legislature. So I know that really matters. I saw it and I feel it. And I'm so glad I'm going in there with those folks. Um, and I hope that we can provide more space for that kind of next generation mm-hmm. uh, to step up and run, too. And uh, Aaron, you mentioned a little bit about orientation. Uh, Claire and Zainab, anything you want to tell me about the orientation? Like what happens uh, in orientation if you are a new senator? Do you talk about like what are, what the expectations are for you? But then also, too, you have to hire staff. I mean, what, what are you all talking about in orientation that you can tell, tell us about? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, orientation is a lot of uh, the culture of the Senate. Um, the norms of that you're coming into and what's uh, what's what's like what you have to follow. Um, it's not necessarily about your individual priorities as as a senator. It's about the body and um, it's about some of it how you're going to work together. But mostly learning about the culture of the Senate. I think uh, Aaron McQuaid said it right. You know, you can't drink water on the floor, and that's something that's like surprising to to many of us. Like Aaron is nursing, like. Mm-hmm. She needs to drink water, and so is there a dress code? 
Yes. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Should we um, describe the dress code for women? Please. Really, what's the dress code? Does it include wearing a, a hijab? No one's ever talked about it. And I don't think that's ever, you know, no one said you could or could not wear it. I plan mm-hmm. to wear it. Um, and I don't think that's ever been a conversation because that decision mm-hmm. was never right. something that they needed to think about. Right. Um, anything stand out to you in orientation so far, Claire? I think at one point there was something about like, we don't really know what professional is for women. Again, because we, we haven't know. been there, what the professional dress is, right? Okay. So for men, it's really clear that it's like suit and tie. I have some day. ideas. I can recommend some fabulous capes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the, pro- <laughs> the problem is, is that the, it says business professional for women, but there's no definition. And then it was said, but don't worry, your colleagues will police it for you. Yeah. Amazing black women in in the in the House because we haven't been in the Senate led the legislation on the Crown Act right. And that, well, I'm looking at that. your hair. You have naturally textured yeah. hair. Yeah, that's beautiful. And thank you so right. much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll be coming in with my hair, and they're gonna have to deal with it. Uh, but and it's professional, right? But yes. that's that's what is so. Um, upsetting about it right is that like there's just that those layers of just who we are how we how my hair grows out of my head is considered unprofessional right in so many settings and so when you hear these things like well we'll let you know mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. think i'm i'm not about to change this hair <laughs> i mean like, not long ago senator pappas talks about this one women weren't allowed to wear pants so they had to wear dresses mm-hmm. not that, that long was, ago mm-hmm. not that long ago like or was it did they were had to wear pants it was one way or the other and she's still a senator couldn't wear pants yes they had to wear dresses or skirts yeah. you could not wear pants and pantyhose yeah. so, i mean like that changed oh. and while wow, she's been a senator well, which is yeah. not that long ago and she still is currently serving oh brings a question to mind have the uh other women in uh the state senate and in in the house have they reached out to you to congratulate you and to say, I can be a mentor, I can be of help to you. Have you had some correspondence with some, some folks in the legislature that you find encouraging that, that makes you look forward? Like, okay, there's some folks who are really going to uh, have my back. For me, I think day one when I launched, even before I launched my campaign, people like Representative Ruth Richardson had mm-hmm. my back, was one of the was the first person that ever endorsed me. Another black she, woman. She had never endorsed anyone before. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not her thing. Um, and she, she is somebody who I talk to a lot who's had my back, um, Representative Esther Baje and Hassan. It's mm-hmm. been, for me, the black women that show up for me consistently. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think the women, you know, in our DFL caucus and the Senate and House, absolutely. Someone who I really look up to and who I had a conversation with early on is former state senator Mimua, who was also a first, mm-hmm. right? And I keep being like, She's you were first there? first Hmong woman. First, yeah, first Hmong woman. In the Senate. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how did you do this? Like, you know, I've got Aaron and Zainab and other, you know, folks of color, other queer folks that are going in. Um, and she was like, yeah, you know, it was a, it was a lonely space at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to really honor that and and call on those folks who've been there and who've been those first um hopefully there's more firsts that are coming too because we still got a long way to go to be representative of this community but those those bonds and those people that you can call on are really important to me and aaron do you feel like there uh you have mentors or people who've reached out to you to say uh i got you 
Absolutely, both the House and the Senate. And, you know, I'm really thankful for um, Rena Moran has just been a mentor since I was in the House and she's retiring from the legislature now. So um, I'm going to I'm going to keep working with my colleagues here in the Senate. But I, you know, Lori Halverson, who was my mentor when I was in the House as well, and Melissa Franzen and Aaron Murphy and Lindsay Port. And we have some House members going up to the Senate, too. So um Elise Mann, who's returning, and Kelly Morrison. We've just we've built built a really great first term class, and we're relying on each other, and that's really been um, kind of a, a raft in the raging waters. I feel like we're all just finding refuge with each other. I have with me Zainab Mohammed, the senator elect for Minnesota Senate District sixty three, which includes parts of South Minneapolis. Aaron May Quaid, the senator-elect for Minnesota Senate District 56, which includes Apple Valley and parts of Rosemount and Egan. And Claire Umu-Verbaden, the senator-elect for Minnesota Senate District 66, which includes Roseville, Lauderdale, Falcon Heights, and parts of St. Paul. All right. So uh, we talked a little bit about what all of you are going through. And I want to talk to you individually now about the work that you've done in in your past and sort of a a little bit of your personal background. Um, And Zaynab, I know that uh, you uh, previously worked uh, as a policy aide for Minneapolis City Council member Jason Chavez. What did you learn from that job? Um, Do you think that that will, uh, your experience there is going to help you as a state senator? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, some of the things I learned working for uh, Councilmember Chavez, and I still work there, is uh, how important your constituents are, um, and that when they do reach out to you, it really does matter. Often, when I was running for office, I kept talking about your council member should be the person that you call when you need when your garbage hasn't been taken out. Like you should be that connected to them. Um, and of course, being uh, working in that office has taught me. Um, how left behind our communities are when it comes to reaching out to their elected because we don't reach out, you know, like we we often show up to them when, we, when we're knocking doors. Um, and Councilmember Chavez was, uh, he worked so much harder than a lot of folks I know. I mean, he, we were door knocking during session when he didn't need to, to talk about the issues that he was working on, to talk about the policies we were bringing forth, which is what made his constituents really engaged. And so some of the things I'm, I'm looking forward to taking with me is keeping, making sure that my constituents are engaged and know the policies I'm working on, um, connecting them to the services that our government can provide, which is something that often, because our communities don't know how, then they don't utilize it. Mm-hmm. And then we don't know what to change because we don't know what is working. And so that's really important to me. As I have been reading about uh, each of you, um, I found an article in the Sahan uh, Journal, um, Zainab, in which you, you said, you're quoted as saying, I've walked the halls of the Senate for the past year and a half lobbying for bills, and I never saw myself in there. There's not a single black woman. Tell me more about um, your experience lobbying uh, and going up to the Capitol to as, to lobby for issues. Yeah. Uh, so prior to working at the city of Minneapolis, I used to work for a civil rights organization called CARE. And we, we worked on public safety bills. And so this was in the height of the George Floyd um, when all those stuff was happening in our communities. And it was about we had uh, a large number of bills around public safety, what it means to create a public safety system that's working for all of us that's keeping us safe that's equitable and so I was um, working with a lot of legislators both in the house and in the senate uh, I would go to the house I would go to the house and there would be few people who reflect my experiences who look similar to me and so I knew I felt comfortable and I would go to the senate and it 
there's not a single woman or individual who reflected my experience as being a black woman um, who I could relate to and say, like, this is really important for our community, which is um, probably one of the reasons that pushed me to run for office. Because often our people, when we don't see ourselves um, in those positions, we tend to walk away because we don't feel welcomed. Um, and it was important for me to say, well, there's going to be a seat at the table now. And so then what happens? What's lost if if those members of the community don't come forward to express what they're going through? The the, the experiences. Mm-hmm. And so then you have somebody from uh, different parts of the city or the state who don't reflect your experience and what you're going through and what you need from your government, from the government, the people you elected. And those um, are the people making decisions. For you. Right, right. right. And I, I should note too, I don't know that we've, we've stated this, that you, you will be the first woman of Somali heritage elected to the state Senate. Yes. Or you are. Yeah. Yeah. So... What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, it means that immigrant communities have a place in our state. Uh, we, you know, Somali people have been around for 30 years, so we're technically a newly immigrant communities, but I think we've shown up, showed up in different parts of our government, and we're learning how important it is to, to show up in these spaces to talk about the issues that are affecting us all. And uh, Claire, um, Zainab mentioned police reform and and police uh, public safety. Um, I know that in 2016, uh, when Philanda Castile was shot and killed uh, by police in your district, um, you were very much affected by that. What did you want? What do you want to do in the state Senate to address uh, public safety and 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 law enforcement concerns on Mm -hmm. the state level? I feel like that is what I need to keep in mind at all times. Like, this is why I'm doing this. This is why I ran. And I want to continue to talk about um, how police brutality is unacceptable and it has to stop. And I don't ever want to see this happen in my district again. It's so hard because, you know, that happened in 16. And then there were just so many more instances in our state that happened to to the point where I feel like it's something we're becoming known for. I, I have found in just my conversations about public safety and mm-hmm. law enforcement that a, a lot of the, the, the tension there is that people um, rely on what their personal experience has been with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And so for a lot of people, it, it's been all positive. So it's hard to believe that there's another narrative. Is that what you have found? So I think about when I first ran, I, I was like, this is... I got to be true to myself, right? And I and I wrote a letter uh, to the delegates at the time, right, explaining why I'm running and, and who I am, what this is all about. And I talked about that. And I talked about how, you know, Philando Castile was shot and killed in our district six years ago. And I talked about how it's really just sort of the top of the surface of things here in this state and that the racial inequities are in everything from healthcare to housing to education. I mean, Yes, there are people who don't have that, you know, those experiences, but I actually have a lot of confidence based on the experience I had throughout, you know, the campaign that people get it. You know, I went to their doors and I said, I'm running for racial justice. And they said, yeah, I'm with you. You know, people of all different races, of different ages um, and and backgrounds, um, I was really clear and I was nervous about that. You know, when I got started, I didn't know how people were going to take it, but I felt like I had to be true to myself and say, I, you know, my platform was like, education is a racial justice issue. Healthcare is a racial justice issue. You know, climate justice is racial justice. Reproductive justice is racial justice. I just, I wanted to be, you know, clear in what 
the fight is that I'm taking it, you know, to the state capitol. And it's a fight against systemic racism. And I, it's, it's, I think it's the issue of our time. It's every single issue um, is an issue of racial justice. And we just, it's unacceptable that we have the worst disparities in the country here. And if we're just, if we don't get serious about changing our systems and bringing that racial equity lens, then we're going to continue to have these outcomes. So um, I know it's a battle and I know there's going to be people there in the, in the Senate who don't want to accept that or believe that. And I'm going to do my work to find those com- that common ground and those values and to uh, move policy. But I do really feel like, you know, I stayed true to myself and my community said, we believe you, we hear you, we think this is an issue too, and we think you're the right person to tackle this job. So that gives me a lot of faith that people know racial justice um, is an issue for Minnesota. And this is your profession. You are uh, the equity manager for the city of St. Paul and chair of the Roseville Area Schools Foundation. How have these roles um, shaped how you think about politics? Yeah. So I um, I left the city of St. Paul in the summer. Um, I'm still sort of in a similar space now as uh, Minnesota State Director for the partnership where we do leadership development programs for uh, professionals of color. But I've been in that DEI practitioner space for these last few years. And, you know, I joined the city of St. Paul uh, in 2019, right before the pandemic. And then, right, you know, right before the murder of George Floyd. And as I was leaving, I told folks, like, if you had told me when I started this job at the city, all, yeah, all that was coming, you know, I would have been like, oh, my goodness, what a time to be in that space of leading racial equity work when it was like, what everybody was talking about. And to be, you know, a black woman myself, someone who was born and raised here, you know, it was was so much to experience that in your community, but then have it also be your job and your role. And you're trying to, you know, um, respond to your community and provide these services. I learned so much in my time when the city was really in this emergency response period. Mm -hmm. And it was really hard, but it was it was one of the most rewarding experiences I've ever had. And I learned um, just so much about kind of movement and change and um, how how people can grow on these really, really, really tough things we're experiencing in our community. Erin, uh, you're the advocacy director of Gender Justice, which fights for uh, gender equity. And uh, I, I've done some reporting on some of the cases that uh, g- gender justice has been involved with. Um, and you also work with Unrestrict Minnesota, which advocates for reproductive health care. And so the, your background, does that tell us, uh, the, do those roles tell us about what we will see as your priorities as a state senator? So, certainly some of them, yeah. I mean, I spent the last... Um, four years or, you know, almost four years since January of 2019, preparing for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And so um, reaching that point this summer, we weren't in Minnesota, we weren't caught flat footed, we had an entire movement built around uh, with a lens of reproductive justice, which is an organizing and political framework created by black women, um, moving not just policy to protect, expand, and destigmatize access to abortion care and all reproductive health care. But we had filed litigation against the state to remove the barriers to accessing abortion care in Minnesota. And we won that case like two weeks after Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so I've spent the last, you know, many years working on that. Um, I'm also 
really, really passionate about ending hunger, particularly childhood hunger. I just uh, finished my term on the board of Hunger Solutions. And so universal school meals is going to be a top priority for me. And um, I'm just going to keep working on, you know, reproductive justice and and hunger. That's probably enough for for the first few months. (laughs) Hunger and uh, food insecurity getting so much Mm -hmm. attention right now because of inflation and grocery prices already was an issue. Mm -hmm. A lot of families for the first time Mm -hmm. are recognizing that they can't feed everybody in their home. What? What, what can be done on a state level about that, though? Yeah, feed kids in schools. Um, we know that hungry kids can't learn. A lot of students get their meals at school. And we when you talk to teachers who have meals in schools for their kids, they're like, it's a world of difference. So um, that's where I'd like mm-hmm. to start. Uh, we can certainly uh, have meals in schools. And we actually just ended that federal program. So there was, you know, during the pandemic, there was actually less food insecurity in the state of Minnesota, particularly amongst young people, um, which trickles up to their families as well. So returning that program and using some federal money and then also some state money to do that. You've pointed out in interviews, uh, you're not just uh, one of the first black women in the state Senate. You're also the first black mother in the state Mm -hmm. Senate. We heard Claire talking about her mother. (laughs) Um, So how do you think motherhood, how has it changed you and how will that affect your uh, being a lawmaker? I mean, you're, you're coming, you've served time in the house. You Mm -hmm. did two years. You're now going to be a state senator, but also years later and as a mother. What's Mm -hmm. different with Aaron now? Well, I I mean, personally, I think, um, you know, you feel the very real impacts of the cost of childcare. You feel the very real impacts of, oh my Mm -hmm. goodness, we call it our, our, you know, vacation home that we'll never have. Um, It's a whole (laughs) second mortgage. Um, And you think about the implications for the world if we're going through climate collapse and I look around and I'm like, will we have a planet for my daughter? I was holding her when the leaked decision came out, like, will she have rights? Um, And so, you know, it makes makes it really personal because you're looking at your child and you want this world to be really great for them. But as a black mother, as the first black mother in the Minnesota State Senate, it it makes it very real um, what all other black mothers are going through, whether they're in Minnesota or around the country. Like we want the best for our children. And so often our our contribution to the household is diminished and our children aren't seen as important. We um, over, you know, we adultify black girls. We um, ask black boys to grow up too fast. I I remember when I was a child and we had that dinner table conversation and, you know, my parents were very clear about how you have to interact with the talk for the talk. Mm -hmm. Um, So for a while, when I was, you know, like five or six, every time I would say please or thank you or excuse me, I would say, please, Mr. Police officer. Thank you, Mr. Police officer. Excuse me, because I I understood the conversation of politeness to extend to everyone. And then you just add in police officer after it. Right. And so if we're talking about black mothers and their children, right? We know that they need to be safe in their communities and safe from from police violence. And so there's there's just a whole host of, of issues to tackle garbage burners in communities and the rates of asthma and lead in homes and meals at school and, you know, housing and all of these things are just going to be really, really important. And now we got a black mom in the Senate to fight for him too. Um, I want to get back to uh, the questions about age. Um, Zainab, you're 25. Claire, you're 27. Did people tell you that you were too young to run? Where where there are some discouraging voices in this process who said, wait a few years, get a little more experience doing this or that. Um, did you get that? I cannot tell you how many people have told me you are way too young to be doing this. Are you ready? And what do you even know? Like, are, like, what does your resume look like? 
Um, and often it's people who've never lived outside this country. It's people who've never been through war. It's people who've never had to immigrate here and help their family settle and themselves settle and learn a whole different language. Um, it's what do their resumes look like? Yeah, you know, wow. they got a lot of PhDs, um, but not as much experience as, I, you know, I've had to live through and, and make through in life. And um, people will always tell you to wait your turn. Like there is there are turns for everything. And it's like this unspoken rule of like, hey, like, just wait your turn. You're going to know when it is. Um, but I, I just I think it's 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 just not true. I think that most people, if they're confident in themselves and they have a community and people who back them, everyone in your community will tell you you are the one. And I think I've had plenty of those conversations, mm-hmm. which have been way more encouraging than those that have tried to discourage me from running. And Claire, did were there voices who told you to sit down? Oh yeah, yeah, a lot around the age that I heard that so often, and I just I don't care. Like I I had to again be rooted in like why I'm doing this, and remember, you know, I I knew my community, and I knew that they were ready for this. I had to trust that, and trust that I you know could bring that message, and um, it would resonate with folks, and so. I think that's really the beauty of when you campaign hard the way that we all did. We knocked so many doors. But then, you know, like I went to those doors and I said, I'm running for racial justice. I'm running to build a community that's safe for all of us. You know, people, they told me these stories about um, the gun violence they were facing or feeling unsafe in their communities or fearing that their kids were going to, you know, be shot in school. Um, the public safety was really that central part of, of my message. And, and I referenced that letter earlier, too, where it talked about the police brutality and the violence. And I asked people so often, like, what would make you feel safe? And they said, I want good schools and I want health care and I want, you know, good affordable housing and I want clean water and air. Right. Like and that's what I talked about Um on the campaign and it's informed by those conversations I had with voters. So I just, it's, it, it makes it very clear. Like I had those conversations with folks. I heard directly from them. I know what I'm fighting for. I asked them and I'm going to continue to be in, in touch with them. Like I, I will put in the work for my community because I love it so much and I know we can do better. Um, so you know, if you if you're if you're going to take that work on, you can do it. It's not about your age. It's not about your race. It's it's about I I think it's that fight and that fierceness. Um, and that's all I know. Aaron, anyone turned to you and said, you know, you're doing too much. You just had a baby. You know what? You need to sit down. I, I've had people feel lots of different ways about me running for office. Um, and, you know, and I had a really tough primary as well. Um, but, you know, when you have a vision and when you have a connection to your community, you run for that and it resonates with people. And, you know, that's why I ran. That's why I was able to win both the primary and the general election. And I think um, more than anything, people want leaders that are invested in their success and invested in, you know, bringing actual values that exist within our community that are reflected back to the community. And so I think um, – I think we all bring that and I think we see that. And so when so when people say like, wait your turn, what they really mean is, well, you know, we'll tell you when it's your turn. It's never your turn. Um, so you just you got to own that space and you have to own that. And, and we've certainly done that. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's how I've just kind of gotten past the age thing or the mom thing or the, you know, whatever thing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
when I think about uh, people who are listening, who are following you, reading about you, um, folks who may be very involved and in, and in, and in, in contributing to their communities, but yeah, not get into politics. Uh, so many people are turned off by the expense of campaigning and how ugly politics can get. It didn't deter you. And so I want to know in, the, in the, uh, my last question to you all, what would you say to people who are like, well, I, I, wonder, I wonder if I could run for office? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what would you say to someone who was who thinking about it that maybe next time I'll, I'll maybe it's a city council seat, a school board seat, mm-hmm. you know, something, a county commissioner. What would you say to encourage someone to, to, to jump in, uh, Zainab? You know, when we launched my campaign, I was 24 years old. Um, (laughs) And so thinking about running, it was about money. It was about fundraising. It was about how are you going to pay for all this? Because most of my friends are just recent graduates like myself who don't come from money, who are poor. My family is extremely poor and are immigrants. Both of my parents work uh, in factories and, you know, like the only thing that sustains them is having union jobs that's the only thing that protects them and so like i often thought about that like how am i going to be able to like have a campaign that can that can actually hire people and can sustain it but when people feel connected to you and your experience and they believe in you they invest in you and i know that the the reason i'm so invested in bringing more young people into this space particularly young people of color is because often we're told, wait your turn and like it'll happen. But we are the ones who know what it means to wait around. And we are going to be the ones who bring more people into this space. Claire, what would you say to people who are kind of on the fence and but just don't think they have everything that they need to actually be elected to office? You know, the immediate thing that came to mind for me, uh, my friend and my council member, Mitra Jalali, said to me that uh, when you run, there are people, you know, throughout your life who are going to come there and they're going to be there for you. And then there's all these people who you're going to meet along the way that are going to become your family and they're going to become your team and they're going to get you through it. And it's so true. Um, Like being really rooted in that and your community staying focused, I think is so important. You know, I was always like, we need to knock more doors. (laughs) Like we just, we need to, we need to go to people. We need to understand what's important to them. We need to make sure they know that, you know, I want to fight for them and have a really clear grasp of uh, of the issues. So if you want to do that work and you care about your community and you'll go to people, you know, you've got it. And um, and then I think it's it's just like recognizing that you probably already have those experiences that will, you know, translate well. The last thing I'll say is like that's also why it's important that, you know, Three of us are going in there so that we do do our part to change these systems to make them more equitable, right? Like we can, there's a lot of ways we can reform, you know, how campaigns work, campaign finance, and, you know, just even the nature of serving in the legislature where like, what we're paid and that it's part time and mm-hmm. we've got bills to pay. We have families, <laughs> right? Like, um, so we, we still have to work and have hold other jobs. It's a lot to hold. It's hard for young women to do that and and mothers to do that. So um, we're going to do our part to change those systems and provide more space um, for more black women to be there. And Aaron, what would you say to someone who is thinking, again, not just running for state senate or uh, the house, but school board, uh, city council, county commissioner, what would you say to encourage someone to make that leap of faith? I, I mean, I would say do it and know that that you live 
the laws and policies and rules of this state, of your county, of your school district every single day. That's all mm-hmm. the information you need to know. The bill numbers and the committees and the appropriation amounts, that all comes later. So jump in and get your people around you. Um, listen to the smart people who run campaigns. Um, knock those doors. Talk to those voters and know what you're running for. Know how you're going to win and then assemble your team around you to get it done. Because if you if you're thinking about running, you're a person who should run. Right. Like it takes a lot to get from um, I would never run for office to oh, maybe I would. And by the time you get to maybe I would, you're ready to do it. And so I'm just going to I'm pushing you off that cliff right now into the pool, (laughs) into the deep end. You can do it. All right. Well, our time is up for today. I really enjoyed getting to know each of you better. And I hope our listeners did as well. I want to thank our guests, three outstanding women of color headed to the Minnesota State Senate, the first black women to be elected to the state Senate and the youngest woman to serve in the state Senate. They will be sworn in in January. We've been talking with Zainab Mohammed, Senator-elect for Minnesota Senate District 63, which includes parts of South Minneapolis, Aaron May Quaid, Senator-elect for Minnesota Senate District 56, which includes Apple Valley and parts of Rosemount and Egan, and Senator-elect Claire Uluver-Baden from Minnesota Senate District 66, which includes Roseville, Lauderdale, Falcon Heights, and parts of St. Paul. Thank you, Senators, and I'm wishing you all well in the next chapter of your lives. This conversation today was produced by Samantha Matsumoto and Matt Alvarez. Be safe, everybody. I'll talk to you tomorrow morning at 9.